Hello, and welcome to the Bureau 42 Greatest Science Fiction Film Tournament Podcast, a sporadic podcast put out through, well, Bureau42.com. I am your host, Alex Case, and joining me today is my frequent guest host... David Stark. Uh, glad to be back. It's been close to a year. Yeah, uh, and what a great time to be back for um, discussion of the, well, depending on who you ask, either Howard Hawks or... Um, uh, Christian Nyby film, The Thing from Another World, adapted by from a story um, by loosely Joe, by, adapted. <laughs> yeah, very very loosely adapted from a novel, old novella, by um, John W. Campbell, which last year won a Retro Hugo Award for Best Novella. Interesting. I did not know that. But it deserves it. It still pretty, pretty much holds up. Yeah, there was a. Um, I don't recall if there was a World Con that year. I believe there was, but they weren't giving out Hugo Awards at that con. So, um, hence the retro Hugos for all those years where science fiction came out, but there wasn't a World Con or a Hugo Awards ceremony awarded for them. All right. So this film is made in 1951. Um, and kind of shows. Yeah, yeah, it does. It um, it is such a product of its time. Uh, with it's really interesting because in it, you know, shortly after World War II and obviously the dropping of the nuclear bombs, we've really much got the the military is the moral center who can decide what science should and shouldn't do. Because we've got, I mean, science is just running rampant through this film. <laughs> rather. Um, we should probably talk a bit about the film's plot. Um, the film is, unlike the novella or the um, remake by John Carpenter, which I've podcasted on previously with uh, Blaine, Do Blaine Dollar. Link will be in the show notes. Um, involves the crash of an alien spacecraft near the North Pole, and uh, where there is a uh, currently an Arctic expedition doing various work. And a group of military men are sent out with excavation equipment to try and recover it. They don't recover the spacecraft, but they do end up recovering... It's the, the, the member of its crew frozen in the ice. They don't recover the spacecraft because they accidentally blow it up. <laughs> to be fair, it seemed like a good idea. Trying to excavate it with thermite seemed like a good idea at the time. Yeah, I had, you know, they did it and it just exploded. <laughs> Which uh, the novella um, uh, theorizes because the ship was had large magnesium content in its hull. <laughs> will set off really well that's not in the movie though so they just tried to you know break the ice with thermite and it blew up the ship like you do <laughs> um to be fair in this um john carpenter version the ship is actually excavated mostly intact yeah by the norwegians very industrious people, apparently. Because that ship is huge there. Yeah. Well, also, they used the thermite in the um, 
in the Carpenter version as well. It, um, so there's that. Yeah. Anywho, um, <clears throat> what happens in this version is the creature ends up being thawed out, apparently deliberately. Uh, it's left up to it's there's some doubt set on whether the creature is thawed deliberately or unintentionally uh, through an electric blanket, and the creature ends up running rampant on the base. And, and that's pretty much where the similarities with the uh, short with the original story end entirely. Also, kind of where they end with the uh, Carpenter version. Is in this version, the creature is. A plant monster with no shape-changing abilities whatsoever. No, but it does have that, you know, great regenerative power. It, yep. And, and it also can also feeds on human blood, rather, or animal blood, rather than um, any than uh, just shape-changing or anything like that. And that's the reason why it's going around killing people. Which at least is a reason in this version, you know. Reproduce. Last of your kind. Well, maybe not. Uh, yeah. In this version, the thing just crashed as opposed to like 20 million years ago. So, aliens not nice. Yeah. Um, so, in this version, the I'd compare the thing, the, the monster, to... A little bit like it acts like your Jason Voorhees or Michael Myers from the Halloween style killer in terms of not in terms of the the level of of gore or anything like that because this is a 1951 movie we're still under the Hayes Code I believe, um, but more in terms of how it acts in it rarely moves faster than a brisk walk it as seemingly it's seemingly indestructible has massive amounts of strength. Has a certain degree of cleverness and inventiveness, though we see that though that those elements are off are generally off screen. Um, but otherwise, it appears to, it acts like a big dumb monster and a tactic, and it goes out like a big dumb monster. Yeah, yeah, it's um, he's a slasher villain from the eighties, which kind of makes sense if you consider how influential this film was with a lot of slap directors yeah. of those kind of films. Um, in particular, again, John Carpenter. For that matter, um, oh gosh, the director of um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Life Force. Um, I named it fell in my head. Uh, Toby Hooper also found this movie very influential. Um So there is there is that. Um As far as the the plot goes, I think probably the the film has two major fatal flaws when it comes to the narrative. First one is that well science in this film is meant to be they depicted as if it's not being directed by the military, as mentioned earlier, it is run amok and we're meddling in God's domain and all that sort of stupid stuff. Oh my, you know, the head scientist is 
kind of an enormous idiot. <laughs> Absolutely. At the beginning, he seems reasonable in terms of the monster comes out and it, it attacks attack when it, when it attacks a person. The head scientist, uh, Doctor Carrington, response is, "Hey, when it thought out, the first thing your guy did was watching it. Was he drew a gun and shot at it? If anyone else, any one of us, um, were responded to in that way, we'd treat whoever was around us as hostile." And he's got a point there. And then we get to the point where, oh, the creature feeds on blood, and he's trying to make produce more of itself, and he's killing people, and it's killing the scientists to. Um, feed the plant to feed the plants basically, and at which point Carrington's actions become less and less rational. They try to explain this away by, oh, he just hasn't slept in several days, but th that's still a bit much. You know, if I hadn't slept in, let's be charitable, a week, even I don't think I would say, hey, I found these seed pods in the severed arm. I'm gonna plant them in the ground and. Feed them with the blood, with our blood supply. <sighs> the other bit here is, to a certain degree, the gender politics of the film. I mean, we only have one female character, but but she's not written great. No. No, she's... She is the secretary, effectively, for Professor St. Carrington. She, does, she is the one who makes the, the decision to side with the military over Carrington and let him know, let our protagonist know what Carrington is up to. Ish. It's more of she's transcribing Carrington's notes and our military Captain Hendry lead um, walks into her office <laughs> and they start flirting. So she's like, well, you might as well check this out. Yeah, it's implied they had a past, they had a past romantic encounter. Um, the the film has some very Howard Hawks esque um, snark to snark dialogue going on, um, and she certainly is able, from a wit standpoint, to keep up with everyone else in the movie. Um, but in terms of agency, she's basically following the lead of, of other characters in the movie, particularly Captain Hendry, our protagonist. Yeah. <laughs> we should also probably talk about also a few the, there are a few things this film does right. The sets in this film, particularly for a 1950s basically base under siege movie, are fairly extensive. If they um the corridor sets in particular, if they're just reusing the same corridor over and over again from different angles, it's hard to tell. Uh, they do a good job of, of addressing that, and it's clear that it's not like a mirror-related set extension. It's it's a full length, like maybe 60, 70 feet. Yeah, the unlike a good number of these of this type of film back then, you can't just look at it and say, okay, well that's one room, and that's the same room. They just move stuff around, and nope. That's the same room, but this time it has a desk in it. <laughs> it actually had a budget, and it was a... It worked! They used it well. Yeah. Um, we have a couple impressive effects gags. Like, a couple, but they're still good ones. We have the... Um, 
attempt to blast the spaceship out of the ice, which has a pretty big boom. Um, and then there is a really impressive burn gag later in the movie where they try to kill the monster by dousing it in kerosene and shooting it with a flare gun. Yeah, that was fantastically done. Yeah, apparently that was the first full-body burn gag in the history of film. I can believe that. It worked well. It uh, it looked like they were really throwing kerosene at the guy. Probably because back then they would have. <laughs> Indeed. Um, I was watching this and like, oh my goodness, I'm surprised no one on that set got badly burned. <laughs> um, in fact, the uh, stuntman was apparently wearing a full body insulation suit and a separate air supply although the air supply was also according to what i've read 100% oxygen which means he is really wow. lucky he didn't it, the stuntman isn't dead yeah <laughs> they eventually defeat the monster by rigging up a electric rig to cook it I'm not sure of the physics of that because I know that the conductivity of plant matter is different from, say, the conductivity of animal. Oh, yeah. Well, from a purely physics point of view, it could work, but the sheer amount of voltage and ampage would be have to be enormous. But it could work. Yeah. So the question that becomes: Can the out would the generator at an outpost like this from this time be able to put out enough juice to basically cook a big walking tree well maybe, maybe. It, it there are a number of interesting, interesting factors, factors here, here you, know, you know primarily what the resistance, resistance is of this, this you know, you know it's, it's described, described as a plant, plant but, but yeah, yeah, but it's also, uh, you know, moving one, so. I guess the better question would be, how much juice do you need to cook Groot? <laughs> Groot would be a lot harder, because Groot is, as we've seen, primarily more of a, you know, woody sort of plant, whereas this creature was wearing clothes, um, got its arm taken off by dogs, so, presumably, it's not like hard bark. It'd be something softer, more like broccoli, I think. <laughs> they do compare it in the movie as a walking carrot. Yes, yes, the walking carrot. So, yeah, how much electricity would it take to cook a eight-foot-tall carrot? Now I want to find out. <laughs> <laughs> if you are Adam Savage and you are, watch and you are listening to this uh, program... Please try this on a future episode of Mythbusters. <laughs> Please. <laughs> um, the, the creature effect in general, it's... Uh, we make a lot of Jason Voorhees, and, I made a bunch of Jason Voorhees and Michael Myers comments. It's probably because the guy is a bald guy, or it's the guy in a bald cap. There's no real actual costume effect here. Um, there is almost more detail work put into the monster from Monster A Go Go than there is from this or the zombies in night of the living dead um in terms of for making them look corpse-like and pallid than it is to make this creature look in any way alien um 
This actually probably leads to the one wish thing I wish they'd kind of done here with this movie is there's this is when I read discussion of the movie online, it talks about whether or not it'd be budgetarily possible to do um, the actual shape changing monster from um, John Campbell's story here. And I think you couldn't do any of the body horror transition effects um, for two reasons. One, budgetary. Two, Hayes Code or film censors at the time would not let you get away with that level of grotesque horror. But I think you could do it. It's basically focusing more on do, doing the transition rarely. Where, like with in the original movie where... There's the bit where the dog walks into the um, bedroom of one of the uh, people and it's implied that that's when he gets got. And then from there, the question is, okay, um, having people acting differently is you don't see someone get, get directly taken. We just see them walking around and their behavior is off and that sort of thing. And maybe have for the reveal have a moment have some sort of makeup effect or a mask effect where half of a person's face is one face and half of a person's face is another face or something like that. Mm, even that, you know, you're getting... I mean, it's, of... it's kind of pushing it, but it's sort of thing where it's like, okay, you're taking a... I don't know how the mold technology was but at the time, but basically what you'd be doing would be like taking a mold of a person's face and using that to make an, appli an applique or whatever the term is mm -hmm. and applying it to the other to another actor... Yeah, you could do that, but but that would really change the, you know, carrot alien. Oh, I, I do completely agree, and I, I think part of the thing is that is the carrot alien is this film's weakness, is this film's biggest weakness. Yeah. Because um, what the story has, the novel has, and what the John Carpenter movie has, and this film doesn't, is a sense of paranoia. Um, is the fear in there is a internal is both a psychological internal fear and a and also fear of an external threat. Whereas in this version, it's definitely it's just the external threat. There's a monster out there. It's coming at us. We gotta we gotta band together and take it out. Except for the scientists who will still go their own way. Well, even then, towards the end, the scientists go, "Yeah, Doctor Carrington, you crazy. You're, you're really crazy. We'll be hanging with the military guys." Well, the survivors were. <laughs> How many of the scientists got killed because of just really... I think just two. Maybe three. Well, we know two were strung up and exsanguinated. Yep. Off camera, of course, because we can't show that in 1951. Particularly because 1950s were... I don't think we're in McCarthyism yet. 51, uh, we're building to it. We're, we're building to it. So, the fear is there to, to, to build off of. And actually, as a fact, while this film certainly is influential and a lot of people found it um, creepy from the at the time, I think going into the the paranoid fear would certainly um probably given this film a lot more legs and made it held up a lot longer than it would otherwise. Yeah. This as, you know, 
it so could they they definitely could have gone with especially in 51 with the rise of the cold war and the soviet threat they really could have gone with the paranoid you know who is the person next to me mm -hmm. sort of fear and it was like who is he really which definitely <coughs> it would have made this a completely different film. Absolutely. Um, but I think that different film might have been better. Yeah, this film is... It's okay. It, yeah. it, it's okay. It is okay. Um, kind of getting into where this fell into the uh, tournament results. This is a movie where it advanced to the bracket round. Um... And the first round brackets and was soundly trounced by Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If this film did not advance at all, I'd have been fine with that. This film is... It's not what it is so much that, you know, makes it memorable and why we put it on the top list. It's really what it inspired and, you know, what it set the stage for. I agree. Although, I, I still think, like, looking over the Wikipedia page and the awards it's gotten and that sort of thing, like, it's... When AFI did their 100 Years, 100 Thrills list, it made 87. John Carpenter's The Thing didn't. Or, or at least, not as high, because I checked the... the uh, page for John Carpenter's The Thing. Yeah. Uh, John, John Carpenter's The Thing didn't make the list at all. Which seems odd because John Carpenter's The Thing is the much more effective horror film on multiple levels. Yeah, this was... Absolutely. And this film and um, the uh, 82 The Thing have a very interesting relationship in that the thing would have been much more popular if this film hadn't existed because a lot of people went into the thing thinking, oh, it's going to be a remake of that, of the thing from another world. But it, they were completely different movies. Yet the remake would never have been made yeah. if this film had not existed. Yes. So it's interesting. I'm also kind of bummed in terms of the DVD releases of this go, because the one I got from uh, Netflix is one where it, it's a very bare-bones release, as the movie has the trailer. Considering how influential this film was, this is something where I'd have liked to have gotten a film historian, historian commentary on this, or even a commentary from John Carpenter and other directors to talk about this movie. Yeah, and the release I have of it on DVD, it's a full screen as opposed to a widescreen. <laughs> to be fair, at this time they were doing movies in um, full in that aspect ratio. We oh. didn't get the widescreen aspect ratio until the rise of TV, where it's okay. How do we distinguish our movie from television? Uh, how do you make it something beyond to make it a special experience than what you're getting on the screen on TV? And that's when we get when you get wider and wider aspect ratios. And also gimmicks like early 3D or um, scratch and sniff cards or vibrating seats or any of the other sort of stuff. 
Oh man, I wonder when they're going to bring back scratch and sniff cards. Because we've already got the 3D back, so... We got that with Spy Kids 4D. There's a Spy Kids 4? Yep. <sighs> Had scratch and sniff cards. Dear Robert Rodriguez, if you're listening to this, please... Please, I know you like making these fun films, but we're still waiting for Hellboy 3. That's Guillermo del Toro. Oh, you're right. Man, now I feel like an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Just go back and undo like the last 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Something that good? No. <laughs> um, but, um, man, well, has Robert Rodriguez done lately? Um, Machete Kills again? I withdraw the question. <laughs> well, we're, we're still waiting on Machete 3, Machete in Space. <laughs> which is actually relevant to science fiction films. True. <laughs> Barely. True. Oh, man. I just... I kind of want to see Danny Trejo play, like, this just super nice, friendly, like white-collar job guy. Danny Trejo in the office? Yes. You know, just like... Not even the star, just like a side character, just like, you know, Danny Trejo, nice office guy. That would cert that's certainly a um, definite difference from his... The majority of his filmography is basically the tough guy actor. We're kind of digressing. <laughs> just a little bit. Just a little. Well... <laughs> The film is such a, it, it is very, it is what it is. There's not, there's nothing really deep going on in this film. Indeed. If, uh, if I were to get into the uh, bit which Blaine has stolen from Mission Log and I'm stealing from Blaine of talking about the messages, morals, and meanings, the only, the only real message, moral, or meaning it has in this is that the military is more trustworthy than scientists. <laughs> or that's the, basically scientists must be, must be supervised and... Um, placed under direction rather than being allowed to work independently. All scientists use wisdom as a dump stat. <laughs> Pretty much, as opposed to what the, no, oh, no scientists listening to take the wrong way, as opposed to the, the usual dump stat, which is strength. <laughs> well, uh, Dr. Carrington's, you know, final encounter with the thing from another world kind of proved that everything except intelligence was a dump stat. Oh no, he had enough constitution points to survive getting hit by the monster and instead only suffering a, a, a broken collarbone. Uh, which which is still arguably getting off easy considering what happened to his other scientists that he put to um, watch out for the creature. Especially, and getting just a broken collarbone is really impressive, considering the guy, like, backhanded him in the arm and sent him, like, just cartwheeling into a wall. Yeah. Um, there should be at least a concussion on in there as well. Unless, unless they're saying, well, there's also a concussion, but that goes without saying because of the broken collarbone. Yeah. Aside from how... It, how it ranked in the rankings and fared in the brackets. Would you recommend watching this movie? I would recommend watching it if you want to see where a lot of things came from. If 
you just want to watch a good film? Honestly, I don't think I would. I mean, it's got the excellent Howard Hawks dialogue, which I want to see. I'd like to see more of people actually talking over each other, which you don't get much these days. But there's half a dozen better films, at least, if you just want to see that. Definitely. Um... It's slow, and the buildup is basically not there. It's sort of this following the life of this guy until, oh, Alien shows up. And then it's just a very lackluster monster film. Yeah, I definitely kind of agree. This is... If you want to get Howard Hawks as a director or what what makes Howard Hawks work and his work enjoyable, um, The Big Sleep's a better movie. Uh, The original Scarface is a better movie. His Girl Friday is a better movie. This film... As far it's influential, influential on science fiction horror, particularly through much of the 1950s. But on the other hand, as far as flying saucer horror goes, there's stuff like Earth versus the Flying Saucers. As far as atomic fueled horror goes, there's things like, I mean, for all its flaws, them. This is, and for that matter, if you're looking for an adaptation of who goes there, there's John Carpenter's The Thing. It's enjoyable on an off viewing. I'd say if it's on Turner Classic Movies or whatever, or on Netflix Instant, and and you feel like just a one-off viewing session, it's fine. But this is not a something I'm desperate to put in my collection unless this gets like a big Criterion collection, heavily remastered, historian audio commentaries, essays, that sort of thing. Something like that. Oh, one thing we didn't touch on that the movie actually did extremely well. The music. Oh, this is true. I, I normally am all about that because I listen to the score on all classical... Yeah. Our local classical music station. Heavily, heavily use of a theremin, and it so sets the weird alien mood. This is true. I mean, we, we've gotten theremin in, uh, uh, in other science fiction films before, but like, I believe, like, um, what was the uh, the movie? The movie with Robbie the Robot. Oh, uh, Forbidden Planet. Forbidden Planet. Forbidden Planet was after this too. Well, Forbidden Planet also has the same sort of science should be second to, should be under a greater authority thing going on. It's still, it's a lot better movie in a lot of respects, and, but they both, but this movie kind of does the theremin score first, and it's very effective at creating that, at, at bringing in the creepy tone that other elements of the film fall flat on. <laughs> Completely. All right, so uh, next week we are continuing with our October Halloween Horror Fest. And we're going to finish off the original Alien trilogy with Alien 3. And we'll be talking about the differences and the cuts on that. And that one, that one's going to be interesting to talk about the making of. (laughs) 
Oh my god, yes. Alright, so, until next time, I am Alex Case. I'm David Stark. Thank you very much for listening, and we will hear you then. Until next time, keep watching the skies.